All right, check, check. Okay, we got the mic working. Thank you, Jimmy. And our sound team. Love technology, right? So if you have your Bible, let's turn to uh, John chapter 8. We are in this new series called I Am. We are looking at the identity of Jesus as it has been portrayed in the Gospel of John. So John chapter 8, verses 1 through 30 is going to be kind of our focal this morning. How many of you as a child growing up had to have a nightlight in your bedroom? You're you're willing to admit that? You had to have a nightlight? Like uh, if you didn't have a nightlight, you couldn't go to sleep? Like she's back there shoving on Jerry, so his mother must know. So, yeah, for me, I had to have a nightlight, and here's why. Because um, if I had a nightlight on and I had my closet door shut tight, it was like a force field so the monsters couldn't come out and attack me in my bed. So that was one of the reasons I had a nightlight. How many of you would admit as adults you still need nightlights, right? Although we need them for different purposes. Because now we know when you get up in the middle of the night, when you, the older you get, the more you have to get up and use the bathroom through the middle of the night. So you don't want to be like struggling through a dark room and then all of a sudden your toes catch every piece of furniture between you and the bathroom. So like in our house, we have a nightlight in the bathroom itself. And um, yeah, so you can, you know, it's not like shining in the bedroom, but you can see it through the doorway and make your way into the bathroom without running into something. So uh, it's amazing what a little bit of light will do as it dispels the darkness enough for you to see where it is that you are going. Now, I just saw on Shark Tank last week that they have come up with a new invention where you can remove the nightlight from your bathroom so you're not dispensing that light, but it's a nightlight that actually fits in your toilet bowl, so it just lights up your toilet bowl, and uh, their tagline is just aim and shoot, right? Just aim and shoot. So, yeah, you don't need a nightlight in your bathroom anymore. You can just put it right there in your toilet bowl, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. Well, we're going to talk about a contrast this morning between light and darkness. You're going to find this contrast all through the Bible that the Bible says that God is light over and over and over again. And the contrast, the opposite of that is darkness. And of course, Satan, your enemy, is labeled as the prince of darkness. And so there's always this um, light and darkness contrast, light representing God and darkness representing Satan and all of his, his dealings. Even when uh, Jesus was giving the mandate to the Apostle Paul, uh, who became a follower of Jesus, to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 26, here's what he says. He says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. And so darkness results in a lot of different things. If a person is walking in darkness, the results are things like hatred and envy and jealousy and shame and fear and disappointment and depression and isolation, resentment, bitterness, pride, anger. Those kinds of words are attached to the word darkness in Scripture. But when you look at the results of light, somebody who's walking in the light and the life of Jesus, you see words uh, in contrast to that are like forgiveness and cleansing and grace and uh, humility and guiding and protecting, loving, purification, encouragement, truth, life, growth. These are positive words, right? Rather than the negative side of things, darkness, we have the positive side of things that is in light. And so we're going to contrast this light and darkness because Jesus makes an astounding statement concerning himself. He says in John chapter 8 and verse 12, you'll turn there for just a moment. He says, I am, what, the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so this statement comes after one of the most grace-filled passages in all the Bible, a story of a woman who's caught in adultery and how Jesus is going to respond to her accusers as they throw her in front of him and ask him a question. And so um, we're going to contrast the, the light of Christ as it shines into the life of this woman and how she responds, and the light of Christ as it shines into her accusers and how they respond. There, there's a huge contrast, and it's a contrast that we find in the lives of people all the time that we come into contact with. And so this is one of the great I am statements of Jesus. Now, you know as well as I do, when you read the newspaper, if you still read a newspaper, does anybody still read a newspaper? I don't know. But, you know, your news feed on your phone or you're watching the news on TV, I mean, the world is growing darker and darker with each passing year. And I think one of the reasons why that Satan is ramping up the darkness in our world is because he understands that his time is limited here on earth before Jesus comes back and raptures out the church. And at the end of the seven years of tribulation, he is cast into the abyss, a pit, so to speak, and where he will remain during the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus. He'll be released for a short time and then cast into the lake of fire or Gehenna. So his, he's on a short leash and, leash, and therefore, I think that he's ramping up uh, his activity in our world. Now, the context in which we're going to be looking at this passage is it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, John chapters 7 through 9 is during this Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, this is like six months prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Right? And so they're here at the, this is one of three major Jewish festivals in which every Jewish male was to take himself and his family to Jerusalem and there at the temple and celebrate this particular, uh, their, those uh, festivals. And you'll notice at most of your Bibles will say above chapter 8, in between the end of 7 and 8, the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 8, 11. I, I, I will respectfully disagree, because here is the pattern you see in John chapter 7 through 9, is there is an incident, and then Jesus makes an I am statement, right? There is the incident of people needing food, Jesus provides the food, and says, I am the bread of life. And so here is a woman who has an incident in which uh, she is thrown in front of Jesus, caught in adultery, and he says, out of that incident, I am the light of the world, and then he gives a teaching. And we're going to see about a man who's born blind, and then Jesus gives a teaching about spiritual blindness and all through uh, the Gospel of John. So um, here we are in this, this scenario, this this. Uh, festival was very celebrative, and you would, it was seven days long, you would actually like pitch tents, kind of lean-tos, and you would live in them because this festival commemorated God leading Israel out of bondage to the promised land, right? So we know that there was a 48-year delay. They're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're living in tents, and how did God direct them in that 40-year period of time? Well, by day, it was a pillar of, of cloud. By night, a pillar of fire. And every time God wanted them to settle down in a particular spot, 
They would set up the tabernacle, the fire, a pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud by day, would rest over the Holy of Holies. When it was time for them to pack up and move, that pillar would guide them and direct them. So for 40 years, God has been guiding and directing them. And so it is this, uh, this celebration uh, during this period of time that Jesus goes into the temple and he is in the courtyard of the women. And in the courtyard of the women were the boxes where the treasury was, where uh, offerings were received. But there was something else in that courtyard and there were huge, huge menorahs where they were lit at night. And in fact, the, when the menorahs were lit at night, you could literally see the glow from the temple throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. And so it is, this is where Jesus is standing when these Pharisees and scribes bring this woman caught in adultery and throw her at his feet. And Jesus makes this statement, I am the light of the world. Not a light of the world, I am the light of the world. And so it's this setting where Jesus declares this. Now, here's the kind of spiritual parallel. Just as a pillar guided people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, into freedom, into the promised land, so it is that Jesus, as the light of the world, will guide you out of the bondage and slavery to sin into the presence, the promised land of a relationship with God. And it is the I am covenant name of God that Jesus states. Now watch this. You might want to jot this down. It's not on your outline. This is kind of the theme for this series. I am determines who I am. I am Jesus, the great I am, determines who I am. See, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has given you a brand new identity. So we're looking at the identity of Christ in the Gospel of John. It is the same identity that God has given to you. So what, did Je- what were statements that Jesus made? You are what? The light of the world. He said that to his disciples at one point in time. I am the light of the world. I have an encounter with the light of the world, and therefore I am. I, I am enveloped in Christ. He is in me. I am in him. And therefore now you and I, followers of Jesus, are the light of the world. God has commissioned us to help people navigate their way out of their spiritual bondage and enslavement to sin to find Jesus as their Savior and Lord and through that relationship establish this relationship with the God who created them, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and now we are bearers of the light of Christ as his light and his life is lived through us. So let's look at this woman uh, who is caught in adultery, and I want to extract out of that three principles as uh, the light of Christ shines into her life. Here it is in verse 8 and beginning in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "'Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery.'" In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And so, here's the first principle I extract from these verses. 
And what we see here is the law of God always reveals our guilt. The law of God always reveals our guilt. A woman's caught in adultery, carried out of the bedroom, into the court of the women at the temple. They're thrown at the feet of Jesus, and they're, they're challenging Jesus on his opinion. What should we do with this woman? This is what the law says, so now what do you say? I don't know if you've ever been in a court of law, but it is very intimidating. Several years ago, I had to appear in court as a character witness for someone. So I'm examined by their, you know, their lawyer, and then I'm cross-examined by the prosecuting lawyer. And, you know, they're always going to try to trip you up. And they're, they're trying to, you know, make it appear as though if you're there for, as a character witness that you either, A, really don't know this person that well, or you're making misleading statements. So it was a very intimidating process. Now, you can imagine for this woman, this is the darkest, most shame-filled, humiliating moment in her life because everything that she has been doing behind closed doors Everything that she has been doing in darkness, in secrecy, now is brought to the light. Now everybody knows who is there witnessing this incident. And little does she know she is kneeling before the light of the world. How did she get to this place in her life? How did she come to that point, that crossroad, that caused her to step over a line that she would say, you know what, uh, I think I need to engage in an adulterous affair. At some point, I don't know. I don't know why, but let me speculate. Maybe something happened to her in childhood. Maybe um, that something, whatever it is that happened, maybe it was, a, it was a traumatic experience. Whatever it was, it left her with the internal message that she was shameful, that she was unwanted that she was insignificant in the eyes of others. And that's what drove her behavior as an adult. Maybe her husband was abusive. Maybe her husband paid her no attention. Maybe her husband had had an affair. I don't know what it is, but certainly the, when we experience attacks at the most fundamental levels of our identity, we will do whatever we think it takes in order to kill the pain and simply survive. You know, there's the movie that came out several years ago. It was a musical movie, and I'm not real big into musical movies, but my wife is. And so we went to see it. It was Les Mis, and in the movie, there's a character named Fontaine. Fontaine was uh, played by Anne Hathaway, and this was during a time in a depressed economy in France. And she lost her job, and she begins cutting off her hair and selling her hair, selling her body in order to provide for herself as well as her young daughter. And she sings this, this, this song about her life and what she dreamed it would be like and what it would look like and how it would all play out. And she never really, you know, it's just like life had killed the dream that she once dreamed. Maybe this is what happened to this woman. I don't know. But here's what I know about guilt and shame. When you first experience it, uh, it is very acute. So the first time she stepped out on her husband, and went and had this affair, which I find interesting that the man wasn't drugged along with her. That's another story. Um, but, but you can imagine she, she has this, this one-time romantic affair, and she goes home thinking to herself, well, 
I don't know, how, how am I going to get this by my husband? It's showing all over, I just know it's all over my face. He doesn't notice. How am I going to go to synagogue on Saturday? Surely the priest will know something is up and something is going on in my heart that I'm keeping in secret. But the priest doesn't say a word. Surely God's going to strike me dead for what I've done. But yet heaven remains silent. And so you know how it is with acute guilt. When you begin doing something over and over again, eventually the guilt begins to subside. And it becomes more natural and normal to you. But here she is. She has built a double life. She has a life that is in public, seen as a, a, a wife, maybe a mother, caring for her children, caring for others in the community. But she's carrying this deep, dark secret within her that is now absolutely exposed to everyone. It might be the same way if you are carrying some dark secret and you thought, man, if the people in my church knew the thoughts that are rolling around in my head, the actions that are happening behind closed doors, and they were thrown up on these screens, and somebody would say to me, okay, pastor, what are we going to do with this person? Now you kind of understand where she is. The worst time in her life. She cannot undo the decisions that she has already acted upon. And they say to Jesus, the law says, she is to be stoned. And they were exactly right. That is what the law said. And so you'll notice it says that they're trying to trap Jesus. Because if the Jesus says to her, I'm going to have mercy on you, then it appears as though he doesn't care about the law, nor does he care if you are engaged in adultery. But if he says, on the other hand, stone her, now he is seen as someone who is unmerciful. And the followers that he has up to this point are thinking, do we really want to follow a man like this? The point of all this is this. The law always exposes our guilt. That's what the law of the Old Testament was about. It, was, it had no power to save you. It had no power to transform your heart and your life. It was only there as a school teacher to expose how sinful we really are. I mean, if you just take the big ten, like the Ten Commandments, have you ever told a lie in your life? All of us would raise our hands. And those of you who did not, you're lying. I know it. Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever used God's name in vain? All right, if you are a golfer or a parent, I'm telling you, you've done it right? Uh, so, uh, guys, have you ever looked upon someone lustfully? So what you have just admitted ba on the basis of the law is that you are a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer. Welcome to First Baptist Church, Groveport, where we, where we preach feel-good messages <laughs> so that you feel good about yourself when we send you out the doors. See, this is what the New Testament says. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us could be exposed like this woman who is cast at the feet of Jesus because the law exposes the guilt of our actions, the guilt of our motives, the guilt of our thoughts. That's what the law does. But notice how Jesus responds, verse 6 
It says they were using this to try to accuse him, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who had heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one, is there no one here to condemn you? No, no one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So here's the second principle. The love of God always reveals the grace of God. Jesus is going to respond to this woman, not out of the law, which says stone her, He's going to respond to her out of grace, which is what Jesus came into the world to establish, was that God would, we could receive grace for our sin, the sin that we are guilty because of the law exposes our guilt through Jesus Christ. Now, surely, you know, when it says that he stooped down and he wrote something, and my question, you know, everybody asked me is, hey, what do you think he wrote? I don't know. Uh, but I, I surely, John, would have thought that future generations would be interested in this, and it would have told us, but he didn't. Uh, someone has said, well, maybe he just drew a line and said, you're either for me or against me, and had a, you know, an, an emoji there with a wink. Uh, some people say, well, he, he may have wrote their names. Uh, let me give you a couple observations that I would make because of the Greek word that is used here, and it is uh, the, the, the word kratographin, uh, um, which means to write something down against someone. So I, I would say that Jesus probably began writing down their sins. He's writing down the very things that they're guilty of. Now remember, these are the Pharisees and the scribes. They're the teachers of the law. They, are, they, they have memorized the law. They, they are self-proclaimed um, keepers of the law. And they felt like if you didn't keep the law and you didn't keep it as well as they did, then you certainly were not worthy of God's love, not worthy of God's acceptance, not even worthy of his time, which is why they constantly criticized Jesus for hanging out with sinners. And so maybe that's what they were. Or maybe he just wrote a verse of Scripture, Jeremiah 17, 3. They would have that memorized Here's what it says. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. I don't know. But I do know this. They got the message. If any of you are without sin, be my guest and cast the first stone. Now, the word translated sin doesn't mean just without sin. In the Greek, it goes beyond that, even if you want to sin. If you have sin, do you want to sin? All right, cast the first stone. In other words, he's focusing not on their outward behavior, but in their, on their inward motives. Remember what John says about their motives? They're just trying to trap Jesus. They really don't care anything about this woman. They just want to trap Jesus so that they can have a, you know, a leveraging point against him because they're wanting him to go to the cross. Now, none of us can say that we've never done anything wrong. 
It's easy to see other people's sin. We become blind to our own. Jesus just points out their sin. And so now all of a sudden, they're, they're like a surgeon with a scalpel. He just kind of like dissects them with whatever he wrote. He makes the statement. And, of course, no one is worthy of casting that stone. And so they all leave. And I find it interesting. It's from the oldest person. <laughs> They've studied the law the longest, probably had the greatest sin debt. So now they're all filtering away. And Jesus, in his grace-filled words, says to that woman, where are those who are condemning you? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Broken, ashamed, guilty, humiliated, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he says these grace-filled, love-laced words, neither do I condemn you. This woman's sin has been exposed before the world as she turns to Jesus, the light of the world. She is justified and forgiven by the light of the world. Now, when Jesus offers forgiveness, when he offers grace, it does not mean that he is winking at sin, that he is being soft on sin. He is about to die for this woman's sins. And he knows that. He understands that. He's not rationalizing sin, but he's about to die for sin. Now think about this. Who is the accuser that stands against her? You have these scribes and Pharisees, these teachers of the law, but who is it that's driving them? They're living in the kingdom of darkness, and Satan is the prince of that kingdom. And the demons that have fallen with him from heaven are his minions who are used in order to carry out his wishes and his wills. Just as God uses people to, to fulfill his will here on planet earth, so Satan also uses people to fulfill his will here on planet earth. There was a chess match that was constantly going on between darkness and light from the moment that Jesus was born. Remember? Herod took out the you know, young boys, two years and, and under, had them killed because he thought he could wipe out Jesus. And so there's a move and a counter move, this chess match. And here we find ourselves viewing this chess match. And it's the voice that says to you sometimes, after what you've done, after what you have said, after what sin you may be guilty of, well, you know, you've done that. God will never forgive you of that. You've, you have confessed that sin a hundred times to God. Aren't you ever going to give that up? God could never use you in this world. He could never use your life again. You blew it big time. It's over. Your life will never be good again. No one will ever respect you. Your kids aren't going to respect you because you've made this mistake and you've made that mistake. And there's just the voice of accusation coming at you from all sides. Never confuse the voice of the accuser with the voice of your Savior. She heard the voice of the accuser, but then she heard the voice of her Savior who said, neither do I condemn you. Jesus is always the person we go to in order to have our sin forgiven, to have our sins erased, to have our sins removed. He is, he, is, he is down upon darkness, right? Darkness always defeats light. And a little bit of shame can go a very long way. 
And so when Jesus forgave this woman, forgiveness isn't a permission slip to just do whatever we want. He didn't say, I don't condemn you for I will, you know, the reason he says I don't condemn you is I'm going to take this sin on myself. But he doesn't say to her, now, you notice he says, now go and sin no more. But he doesn't go say, well, now go out and try to live life as best you can, all right? Just try to get through, you know, best you can, and one day you'll get to go to heaven, and it'll all be better. So here's the third principle. The light of Christ reveals a new hope, a new hope. Jesus brings conviction. The Holy Spirit brings conviction, but he doesn't bring condemnation. When you feel condemned for your sin, that's not the voice of your Savior. That's the voice of your enemy. Condemnation is you're a bad person. You're a horrible individual. You will never measure up. God will never love you again. He cannot forgive you for this one. The voice of conviction comes from the Holy Spirit that says, Greg, you're guilty. You lied. You cheated. You're jealous. You're envious. You stole that. You shouldn't have done that. Why? He wants to pull me back into fellowship with the Father. He's drawing me into fellowship with the Father where my accuser, Satan, on the other hand, is trying to push me away from fellowship and walking with God. Because if I walk around the world feeling condemned all the time, A, it's a horrible way to live, and B, how can I ever draw into a love relationship with a person who I think is just constantly condemning me at every crossroad that I fail to take the right way? So don't confuse those two voices. So Jesus brings a voice of hope into her, reveals hope, and he says, go your way and sin no more. He doesn't let her off by saying, again, it's no big deal. Try to do your best. I understand your past. Your father abandoned you when you was a child, and that created all kinds of issues in you, and therefore, you know. No, that's not what he said. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who comes in us, who comes in us, enables us to walk in light, the light of Christ that is now indwelling within us. So let me give you three words or comparisons to write down in your outline. This is not on your outline. You write these down. Always ask yourself, when you're being confronted with, say, for example, temptation, is this going to, is this going to make me more self-centered or Christ-centered, right? God is always moving us towards Christ-centeredness. This is what he's saying to this woman. Now go and sin no more. I realize what you've done. I'm forgiving you. I'm not condemning you. Now go and live another, a new life. That's what Jesus does, right? He takes us out of the enslavement to sin, puts us in the promised land, this relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit, who enables us to move our natural bent is towards self-centeredness so that we begin marching to the tune of Jesus, walking with him day in and day out so that God begins to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the first comparison. The second one you want to ask yourself is, is this. Is this going to make me more fear-driven or faith-driven? More fear-driven or faith-driven? Does God want us living in fear? Who wants you living in fear? Your accuser. As long as Satan can keep you living in fear, you will always remain in this little context of a box of self-limitation 
that you're unwilling to get outside of. God wants us to walk by faith. God wants to move us in greater depths of faith. If I'm going to move with God, I cannot stay contained in my box of self-limitation because of my fears. I must choose faith over fear. That is exactly why Israel wandered for 40 years, right? The 12 spies went into the land, and 10 out of the 12 says, we cannot take this land, even though God told them they could. The, the, the giants are too big. We're like little grasshoppers. We can't do it. And therefore, God says, because of your unbelief, what's unbelief driven by? Fear, you'll wander. And listen, folks, you can live your entire spiritual life wandering in circles, driven by fear, and never moving into the promised land, which speaks of freedom in Christ, so that you're no longer cowing down to all of these sins that keep you crippled and the accusations of the enemy, like condemning and condemning and condemning. I, I can't draw into intimacy with somebody who I feel like is just condemning me, and now in fear I'm just cowering down and I'm just covering my head. Just And here's how we say it. Yo, you know, I'm just a sinner born by grace, and one of these days we're going to make it through this world, and I'll get to heaven, and it'll all be better then. That's hogwash. God did not save you in the present to make you wait until you get into heaven before he begins transforming your life. He wants to transform your life day in and day out. Paul put it this way, even though my body is wasting away as I get older, I can be renewed inside day in and day out because I'm a follower and walking with Jesus. So here's the third thing you want to ask yourself is, is, uh, is this flesh-driven versus spirit-driven. You know, Galatians chapter 5. Paul said you only walk one of two ways. You walk driven by the flesh or you walk in step with the spirit, right? So I don't want to walk. The flesh, remember, is the old, uh, old self, old you, old thought patterns, old that results in you know, dark, the, the, what we call the ramifications of darkness, envy, and jealousy, and all those kinds of things. He wants us walking in step with the spirit, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is giving her a new lease on life to go and live differently. And so you and I have been given a new lease on life. And notice he says, go now, not later, not when you, you know, sometime down the road. He says, go now. Live this new life. And that's what God says to us. This is the beauty of our relationship. Yes, the law says that I'm guilty of sin. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Yes, I understand that. I know that. It is the love of God that expressed the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. You, like I, maybe you were going through life like I was. God was not on my radar. I really didn't care about the things of God. I didn't even understand or know about Jesus. But God chose me. He pursued me. And he brought people into my pathway that helped me come to the point of decision concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, the Spirit of God indwelt you, just like he indwelt me, and he enables us to live in the freedom of Christ. And so my, my um, kind of my faith statement, my ministry statement is, I want to help people find forgiveness and freedom through faith in Christ. It's one thing to be forgiven, but there are a lot of people who are forgiven, but they're not free. You live in the same bondage that you've always lived in because you've never changed your identity in Christ. So, Jesus himself, he's the light, right? He says, I'm the light of the world. Now, notice what he says. Whoever follows me, 
Now, in John's gospel, he uses the word belief or believe a gazillion gazillion times. And really, it's two sides of the same coin, belief and following. What does it mean to follow Jesus? How do I know I'm truly believing? I know that I'm truly believing in Christ because I'm following him. Well, how do I know that I'm following him? Well, there are a lot of different words that the Bible uses in response to that question. So let me just give you a couple of them, and we'll move on. To follow Jesus is a soldier, right? A soldier who follows a captain or a commander. In other words, if I'm following Jesus and I'm walking with him and Jesus says, Greg, you, need to, you really need to get on this path. You need to really go in this direction. You really need to do this. So how does Jesus speak to us concerning those things called the word of God, right? So if I'm really following Jesus, I don't say like I would not as a soldier say to my commander, hey, I don't want to do that. I got a better idea. Let's do it my way. Not going to fly over well, right? Those of you who have been in the military know that you could not do that with your commanding officer. And so a follower, well, I'm, I'm wanting Jesus to, follow, to, to lead me and guide me. To follow Jesus is the same as a servant serving his master. Uh, it, it, was the, it was the duty of the servant to do what the, ma- the master needed done. And so following Jesus, you're saying, Jesus, you're in charge. Show me what I need to do. Show me the direction I need to take. Even the Apostle Paul, when he wrote epistles, letters to churches, he would say, I am a bondservant of Christ. And he's saying, in essence, I am a follower of Jesus. I do what the master tells me to do. Another sense is that of a counsel. Uh, Jesus says he's the wonderful counselor, so I seek wisdom from him. I seek guidance from him. As, as Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. So I trust him as my counselor. That's following him. Or as a student with a teacher. What you're embracing the teaching of the teacher. You're seeking to understand what you do not understand. So if you're a follower of Christ, you are a soldier, you are a servant, you seek his counsel, he is your teacher. That's what it means to follow Christ. That's how he gets us out of slavery to sin. That's how he gets us out of bondage to those things that are seeking to wreck our lives. So how do you know if a person is walking in darkness? Well, let me rattle these off because I'm out of time. Number one, people are uncomfortable talking about Jesus, right? Listen to what the Pharisee says. The Pharisee, verse 13, challenged him Here you are approaching us as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus said, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You simply judge by human standards. He says, I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am the one who testifies to myself, and my witness is the Father who sent me. So here's what, basically what's going on. They're, say, they're challenging Jesus. Look, you're claiming to be the light of the world. You, you can't make that claim because you have nobody to back that up. Now, they challenged him the same way back in chapter 5 of John's gospel, and he gave them witnesses like John the Baptist, 
Heavenly Father who talked about, you know, opened up the heavens and this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased at his baptism and other people. I mean, here's Jesus who has fed 5,000 people, who's done miracle after miracle, even raised people from the dead as a witness and authentication, authentication of who he claims to be, God in the flesh, Jesus, the Messiah of the world, and yet they're questioning his witness. And so, Here's what I've noticed about people who are walking in darkness. They get real uncomfortable when you talk about Jesus. For example, this past Friday, my wife and I and a young lady named Sarah, she is a missionary in Spain. We went to the Stowe Center, which is our inner city um, ministry to the homeless and those who are in poverty. And they feed there every day. They feed lunch every day, Monday through Friday from 11 to 1230. So we went there, and not to help serve food, we, we went there just to sit at the tables and actually talk to the people who are there, right? So we were engaging in conversation with those who are coming for meals, and so I had several conversations, and I had a conversation with one man, and I won't give you his name just for, for, for the sake of that. So we're just talking about various things, and all of a sudden, he brings up the fact, um, he goes, you know, he goes... I, I know there's a God, but I'm really not sure who he is because, uh, you know, you, you can't look around the world and, and say, man, there's just not like some higher power that's behind this. He goes, I don't know what's on the other side of this world, but he said, here's what I want to do when I die. He said, I just want to be in my apartment, sitting in my chair, in front of my TV, and I want to be stone drunk. I don't want to be drunk on beer. I want to be drunk on hard liquor. I just want to be stone drunk and just kind of close my eyes and pass on peacefully. I said, uh, would you like to know what's on the other side? He said, well, there's no way. He says, you know, I know people claim that died and come back. And I said, no. What if, what if there was somebody who, was, who died and was dead for three days and then came back and told about what was on the other side? Would you listen to them? And he looked at me and said, you're a preacher, aren't you? I said, Maybe. But I said, here's what I was. I was an angry, bitter, messed up teenager who looked to drugs and alcohol to make it through the week. But then I met Jesus, the man who died and was buried for three days and came back from the other side to tell me what it was like. And he forever radically changed my life and he can change yours. And this is what the evil one does. Immediately, immediately when you bring Jesus into the conversation, he changed the subject. Well, you know, there's a lot of different gods, and you don't really know if the Bible's true or not. And we don't, you know, and on and on it went. And so he would, he would never let the conversation come back around. This is what people do when they're in darkness. Jesus said they love their darkness more than they love the light. Number two, the second thing that people do is they are unafraid to insult Jesus. Unafraid to insult Jesus. Look in uh, verse 19. They said to him, Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, if you look further in this chapter, in verse 41, who are they referring to? They, they were referring to Jesus because they, they knew the story about what happened with Mary and Joseph. Like, they call him an illegitimate kid. Like, we know who your father was, and it wasn't even Joseph. You don't even know who your daddy. You're just illegitimate. So, really, they're insulting him. They're slamming him for claiming that God is his father when he doesn't even know who his father is. Isn't it amazing that 
when Jesus' name is used in vain, that you don't hear that from other, like, religious leaders? You ever wonder why people, when they swear, they always use the name of Christ? They don't ever swear by the name of Buddha or Krishna or Allah or anybody else. It's always the name of Jesus. It's always the slandering of the name of Jesus. Why? Because that slandering accusation comes from the evil one who is using the language of people in order to defy to, to defy the very name of Jesus, that name at which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that name at which no one in heaven and earth will be saved except by the name of Jesus. And so Satan does all he can to abuse, to misuse, and to insult the name of Christ. When I was growing up, that's the only way I ever heard Jesus' name used was in a curse word. That's who I thought he was. Number three, they're unable to acknowledge their sin. Unable to acknowledge their sin. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will not look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot go. Now listen to what they say. With this, the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot go? Now, here, here's, here's, what the, here's what the Jews thought in that day and time. That if you committed suicide, that was, the, that was a straight ticket to the darkest, most heinous place in hell you could go. And so they're saying that Jesus, oh, he's going to commit suicide and therefore, he's going straight. We're not going to hell. We know we're safe. We know we're going to heaven because, after all, you know, we are the religious leaders. On be, you know, they're going to speak on behalf of God, and, and we, we tell people about what the Bible says. And, but Jesus, he must be willing to commit suicide. He's going straight to hell. But they never acknowledged their own sin. This is what people do in darkness. They don't understand they're in darkness. A couple weeks ago, I met a young man who is a missionary to France through our international mission board, and I sat in a class he was teaching, and he, he asked this question. In Romans chapter 1, God says that he would, the wrath of God is that he would just give people over to whatever it is they wanted. He says, in France, less than 5% of the country is Christian. There are, uh, he's staying temporarily on furlough in Louisville. He says there's 150 churches in Louisville, Kentucky. There are only 120 churches in the entire nation of France, and most of them are two-thirds, if not more, empty. He says, do you think these people are worried about that? Do you think like, like their lives are in a wreck and shambles, that they're disturbed, that they're falling apart? He said, no, they, they appear from all appearances. They're happy, they're content, uh, they're all about money and success. That's become, kind of become their God, and, and they just don't. So he says, I, I would get in conversation. They love to talk philosophically, and they have these groups and coffee houses, and he, he jumped in the middle of one of them, and they love to talk philosophically about all kinds of topics until one day they ask him, hey, what's your topic? And he says, well, let's talk about God. And it's like dead silence. Like, we don't, we don't want to talk about why would you want to talk about God? Why? And then they went out on the street with a camera just to, you know, talk to the French people and see, you know, when you mention God, what, what do they think? He's not even on their radar. They're so in darkness. They're unable to acknowledge their sin because they don't even think they have sin. This is the, this is the ploy of the evil one. Number four, unashamed of their worldliness. 
Verse 23, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus said to them, and so remember, the, wor- the world system includes ideologies and values and philosophies of a system that is run and governed by Satan himself, who is called the, you know, the, the prince of the power of the air. And so it's just like ego takes over. You just kind of edge God out because your mind, your life is built around the systems of the world. What's my next pleasure? What's my next event? What's my next possession? What's my next? And so we are so wrapped up in these things, people who are walking in darkness, that God doesn't even have time to even make an impact. In fact, it's hard for even we as believers who are light of the world to even engage in their lives because they're just so busy. Everybody's so busy. Everybody's so busy. And our calendars are so packed full. And everybody's running from one thing to another. And this is the way the world operates. Number five, unbelieving. Unbelieving. Verses 24 and 25. He says, you know, I'm not going to believe that. I am the, the one I claim to be. Jesus says, you will indeed die in your sins. And that's what they say. Who are you? And just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replies to them. And he goes on in this conversation. Verse 28, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one who claimed to be, and I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. But they're unwilling to acknowledge this truth. They're unwilling to believe. They're unwilling to commit. And so for this woman who was caught in adultery, when she believed, when she committed, when she clung to Jesus, a great exchange took place. God took her sin and he placed it upon Jesus And Jesus took his righteousness and placed it upon her account. The great exchange took place when Jesus died on the cross. That exchange was solidified and sealed. And so in essence, and I wrote it down this way, uh, God treated Jesus like you and I deserve to be treated so that he could treat you like Jesus deserves to be treated. This is what God has done for all of us who are in Christ. But those who are in darkness, who love the darkness, who are still blinded to the truth, and the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the evil one keeps the minds of people blinded to the truth of Christ so they will not believe. These are the people that we've been called to reach. So Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Isaiah 61 says the mandate is to arise and shine. Not to arise and reflect the culture, but we are to arise and shine the light of the gospel into the culture, thus exposing the darkness so that we can bring them to the true light. That is our calling. That is our commission as followers of Christ. So let's bow our heads. I'm sure that every one of us here has a loved one, maybe it's a child, a grandchild, a family member, a friend, a co-worker. You know, you know they're living in darkness. Regardless of what they may say. No, these were religious leaders. These weren't guys who were like pure pagans that were living in darkness. But they never came to the point 
the only thing that can deliver us out of the dominion of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ.